You're listening to Digging Deep, understanding the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Sacramento District, the show that tries to simplify what the district does. So the Sacramento District is what we call full-service district. It's, it's unique in a lot of ways. Floods of record are the biggest storm you've ever seen in the recorded history of the region. I mean, the last thing you want is to have um, water starting to seep through a levee or a dam. The number one thing for us is really people. We can't get it done without our people. Welcome to Digging Deep. I'm your host, Rick Brown. If you're keeping track at home, this is Season 1, Episode 6 of the podcast, and it's our final episode for this inaugural season. If you'll recall back in Episode 1A, I explained that the goal with this podcast was to try to help you better understand what the Army Corps of Engineers Sacramento District does by holding simple, informal conversations with district leadership and team members. We continue toward that goal today with one of Sacramento District's brightest engineers, a gentleman by the name of Mike Rutherford. What follows in this episode is something of a deep dive into the thought process that goes into really any of the various construction projects undertaken by the district. But in this case, we're using the Isabella Dam Safety Modification Project as our primary case study. Mike is a lead engineer and technical lead on the project. And he's one of the best that I know at discussing the complexities of a civil works construction project in a way that, well, even I can understand. Fair warning, there's a lot to take in in this episode, but I think it'll give you a much better view of the scope of a major project like this that our folks at the Sacramento District and all over USACE really dive into each and every day. And of course, we'll get a little personal with Mike and we'll find out what indulgence keeps him up at night. Let's get to it. Mike, thanks for joining us this morning. Let's start off by having you tell us about your role in the Sacramento District. I work for the uh, Division Dam Safety Production Center. I'm a lead engineer slash technical lead for teams that are working on non-routine dam safety projects. So what does that mean as far as non-routine? It means above and beyond our, our normal maintenance, our normal inspection, our normal take care of our dams. Something's cropped up that needs special attention and we need to investigate it and potentially address it. For example, the project I'm working on now, Isabella Lake, we evaluated that about, started about 15 years ago, and we evaluated it for potential flood overtopping, for seismic efficiency, and then as far as performance, because we have two embankment dams there, seepage and piping potential. Let's dive a little bit deeper into your particular job. What is your job description? So for I either fill, fill a lead engineer role or a technical lead role for the Isabella Lake Dam Safety Modification Project. I'm the engineering technical lead for the Isabella Phase 2, which is our dams and spillways component of the project. We had other components like real estate acquisition and other things like that. But for the dams and spillways, I'm, I'm the technical lead. So I've, I lead or co-lead teams, uh, multidiscipline teams, whether they're structural engineers, civil engineers, hydraulic engineers, or geotechnical engineers. On the project itself, um, I started at the study phase point, just as we were wrapping up the study phase and beginning what we call pre-construction engineering and design, 
where we go through and once we've identified the measures that need to be addressed, you know, we physically figure out and we design the project features, we um, write the project specifications. So we put together the documents that the contractor will end up using to build those improvements, if you will, to the project. So how many engineers are in the Sacramento district and then how many engineers would work on a project like the Isabella Dam? Um, so in the Sacramento district, our engineering division has about 300 employees, but we didn't. And of course, we don't need or use all of the engineers. We actually use engineers from the Sacramento district and we reached out to other districts. The Corps is a, is a national organization. So we had help from people in Portland in Mobile, Alabama, in Jacksonville, Florida, in Huntsville, West Virginia. So we reached out to the expertise across the organization, across the enterprise, and where people were um, really good at certain things. You know, we sought that out and we uh, had them assist us during the, uh, the design phase. And now that we're in construction, we had them assist, assist us during what we call engineering during construction. How do you go about, so you're presented with an issue for a, for a, a dam, for the Isabella Dam, let's say, and you mentioned overtopping. How, how do you begin to address that? How do you decide what the right fix is? Or, or is there just like a blanket fix for all of this? There is not a blanket fix. Every project is unique. So Isabella, for example, its watershed is about 2,100 square miles. It goes as far north as Mount Whitney. So we reevaluated the original project hydrology. And so Isabella was built in the late 40s and early 50s. So the original hydrology uh, would have started in the late 30s and 40s, would have been going on even during World War II. So we've learned a lot in the 70, 80 years since the original design occurred. Um, the, uh, the original designers had what they called a standard project flood inflow of, I think, about 150, 175,000 CFS. That was, their, that was the peak amount of water they felt could come into the reservoir. We are now in like the 580,000 CFS range for inflow. So we, we determined that the project was undersized to safely route our flood. And as a result of that, what we should expect would be overtopping of the embankments by up to nine feet. So obviously with an earthen embankment or even a concrete structure um, that's not designed for overtopping, um, that's not something you wanna do. So we identified that hydrologic deficiency. And then we had to start to look for technical solutions on how to address that. And we ended up, leaving essentially the spillway as we have it today, which is our service spillway, which would route the more common flood events. And, and we would expect a spill to occur on an annualized basis of about the probability being about one in 200. And, you know, we thought about, oh, we could just go in and we can widen this spillway and then we can handle any size flood we want. But then you have the unfortunate result of potentially releasing much more water for more frequent flood events and causing, you know, potential life loss downstream, economic damages, et cetera. So we we came to the the result was you can't do any harm when you're when you're looking at that solution for how do we address a very rare event? You don't want to make things worse for the more 
common events, the ones that are going to occur much, much more frequently. So what we did is we decided to raise both embankments and add a new spillway, an emergency spillway. And with that, we put in what we call a labyrinth weir, and I can talk about that more later. But we set the crest, the top of the labyrinth weir, at the top of the dams as they were built at original construction. By doing that, we're not pushing any more water or releasing any more water downstream than we would have had we had an overtopping situation. And the overtopping situation could, unfortunately, lead to potential breach of the dam and then release of the reservoir, which of course is the last thing we want. So from a safety standpoint, we want to make sure that we can safely release the water and that we're not going to do it more frequently than we absolutely need to. So all of our dam safety projects, public safety is the very first thing we address. It's the thing we're always thinking about. And then of course, you know, economics and everything else is, you know, very important, but but public safety is our first effort. I want to go back and, and ask you to clarify a couple of things you mentioned there. First, you talk about CFS. Can you tell us what, what that is and, and help us kind of wrap our brains around it? Sure. Um, uh, a CFS is a cubic foot per second. And my, my closest analogy, and it's not quite as large as a cubic foot, but um, a basketball is close to a cubic foot. So if you, if you would imagine at our PMF release, we will have about 500,000 cubic feet per second going. So imagine you're looking at this like starting line for a race and every single second, 500,000 basketballs go by you. That's a lot. What about the, uh, you talked about probability of being one in 200. How, how, again, how do we wrap our brains around this? Are we saying that once every 200 years, there's a probability of this major flood happening or what? So we've assessed, you know, based on the historic rainfall gauges we have, precipitation we have, even looking back um, before the project, we did what we call paleo flood studies where they, you know, where we had subject matter experts go out and find, hey, how big were the floods before the dam was built? So they would they would do things like look for sediment deposits and, you know, potentially carbon dating and things like that. So they would age it and then they would they would try to go to what we would call a stable part of the, the river where, you know, maybe it's it's mostly rock and you'll get deposits from flood events as they go by. So it's like, well, how big were the were those old events? What can we find? So we did a combination of 100 plus years of data that we have from our stream gauges. We went back and we looked at flood events and then we plotted things. And then from just a weather pattern standpoint, physically, how much water can you get in the air? Um, what kind of intensity might it be? How might it fall on your watershed? So by the time it gets to the reservoir, well, how much water is coming in it at once? You know, including things like, well, how much of it just seeps into the ground? How much of it is snowmelt? So it's actually a very complex problem. And um, we actually, in the 70 plus years that we've had the project, we have not had a rain flood, which would include snowmelt potentially, uh, spill. We have had what we would call a, a snowmelt spill in the summer where we've had the good fortune of having 
really high snowpack years. And then the reservoir just slowly fills up and, and finally spills a few thousand CFS. And that's that's an event we plan for like weeks in advance. But, you know, given all of that data, our current assessment is it's about one in 200. Obviously, with climate change and uh, the mad swings that are, you know, very wet years and drought years and everything, you know, that number will change as time marches on. It will be reassessed and reevaluated. And that doesn't necessarily mean that if, if we experience this last year, it's going to be another 200 years before it happens again, right? Uh, right. I mean, each and every year, the probability is about one in 200. So you could have two of those events or more in the same year. It's not impossible. So yeah, the annualized probability of one in 200 is is just is a probabilistic assessment. It's not like mother nature knows, hey, oh, okay, I spilled this year, so I, I won't be back for 200 years. <laughs> right. So uh, tell us some more about the labyrinth weir that, uh, that you're employing at Isabella Dam. You know, explain it if you can first, and then again, help us understand why, like, why was that the right solution? I mean, there's other types of weirs, right? There's other types of solutions. How do you guys come to, uh, I guess, uh, you know, a decision of what's going to be the right fix? We really wanted to, to build what we call an ungated spillway, which basically means it's a passive system. And when the water reaches a certain stage in the reservoir, the spill will start. And at that point, for the emergency spillway, we actually assess that it won't flow for an annualized probability of about one in 4,000. So that's a very rare event. It's an awful lot of water. Obviously, at that point, you know, we would have localized flooding and things like that because, you know, that's such a rare event. But what happens is the water comes to the top of this labyrinth weir and the labyrinth weir looks like a sawtooth shape. Um, the walls are 28 feet high. So as the depth of the water against the walls goes higher than the 28 feet, it starts to spill. And what happens is with this sawtooth shape, we're able to get in a lot more weir length than if we just put in a straight wall, if you would say. And, you know, Commonly, those type of straight weirs or even an arced weir would be what we call an OG shape, which is this nice curve shape, or a broad crested weir shape, which is flat on the top and sloped on the water side and the, the downstream side. But it allows you to put in a much longer weir. And part of a weir's ability, a major part of a weir's ability to discharge water is just the length of the weir itself. So if you can put more wall in there and put more length in there, you can get more flow out without having to make the spillway extraordinarily wide in order to accommodate that demand. And when you're saying sawtooth, we're talking like a zigzag shape? So it's like a zigzag shape. It's like a okay, series yeah. of almost like a series of V's or W's, if you will. Gotcha. And um, we actually not only we not only took the labyrinth weir, but we put it on an arc. So we put it on this several hundred foot wide radius to get even more wall length out of it so that we didn't have to make the entrance to the spillway extraordinarily large. The length of the weir walls I, is more than 3000 feet. So that's a lot of weir. You're talking if we if you straighten the whole thing out, it would be longer than 3,000 feet. 
Correct. So in this case, was it just, is it a matter of how much space you have to work with as well when you're trying to decide what the remedy is? Partly, you know, you want to balance out, you know, if you're going to excavate a new spillway and this new spillway is excavated through rock, um, you want to balance out uh, what you need for a weir, what, how much excavation you need to go through, you know, what's that volume, you know, the engineering side of it, the economic side of it, the environmental impact side of it. So when we made the decision to, uh, to design the labyrinth weir, we actually went through kind of a statistical evaluation of, well, how many cycles do we make this weir? We ended up choosing 12. And uh, how long do we make the walls? Because maybe maybe this 3,000 plus feet of weir, maybe it's 20 cycles, maybe it's 10 cycles, maybe it's the 12 cycles we chose. And what we did is we looked at hydraulically you're swapping off efficiencies because you're adjusting the angles of things. And, and then cost wise, you're having to look at it because, well, how much wall do we have to build? How much footing is there? How stable might it be? So it's actually a fairly intricate process just to, to narrow down into that cycle. We, um, I think we, our hydraulics engineer, I think he ran, it was several thousand potential geometries for the weir before we settled on what we did settle on. And then once we chose it, we said, hmm, you know, the mathematics of it is great, you know, in general, but we actually need to build a physical model. So we went to Utah State and we built the weir and we built the exit chute. And then we physically modeled on scale. And I do not remember the exact scale. I apologize. We, we modeled on scale through our probable maximum flood routing, which is just about, is it's that, that flood where you go, that's a reasonable flood. We need to design for this. It's not that it's physically impossible for it to be even a little bit bigger, but that's not what we did. It's, you know, it's really pushing the envelope. You know, you're, you're talking about a, an event that we would give an annualized probability of about one in 10,000, right in, right in that ballpark. So we modeled this weir and we looked at it. And at the same time, we did companion computer analysis, three-dimensional analysis of this weir and spillway to look at it and to see how flows would come in. Um, we actually had at, at Isabella, there's a peninsula we call Engineer's Point. So we looked at how does that affect the approach flows? What does that do to the efficiency of the weir? Where does that, what does that do for things? Like for example, the, that in, engineer's point tends to push flows towards the left side of the spillway as you're looking downstream. So how do we make the shape of that efficient? And what you want is what we call weir control. So what happens is as the tailwater gets deeper and deeper over that spillway, as the flows are getting greater and greater, you don't want that weir to submerge because once that happens, you've lost control. And now what happens is you're going to miss your target peak pool elevation. So our very first configuration, once, once we'd gone through all the iterations that we physically modeled for the weir, ended up being what we stuck with 
but it wasn't what we stuck with on the exit channel. We had to make some adjustments. We actually narrowed it up, made it deeper, made it a little bit steeper so that we could evacuate those flows so they didn't all pile up on the downstream side of the weir. And we kept the weir as the controlling structure for the releases. Yeah, wow. I just, it's unbelievable to me how much goes into doing this and thank God for the smart people like you who are kind of in charge of making sure that we get the, the right corrections in place. Do, do you have to make changes? Like, you know, you hear people say, you know, building a plane while in middle of flight. Uh, does that kind of thing happen when you're working on a project like this? I mean, are there, or the, the, whatever the fix is from the get go, you follow that all the way through, or do you have to make changes midway? Um, we actually are making a change right now to the exit channel, not for hydraulic reasons, but as I mentioned a little bit ago, the excavation for the emergency spillway is primarily into rock. And that rock excavation is our source of borrow for the raising of the dams. So we're taking what is, you know, what Mother Nature provided us as these solid blocks of rock now quality varies and there are joints and seams and things like that but we're taking that and we're processing it and we're crushing it down to as small as a sand for a filter for the dam um, drain rock which is maybe an inch or an inch and a half all the way up to our rock fill material which is essentially 24 inches minus so up to 24 inches in size is our rock fill and we're crushing it's to make concrete aggregates. So um, the contractor was required to set up a materials processing plant. They will drill and blast the rock. They will muck it out, load it on trucks, take it over to the processing plant. And from the processing plant, it will go through a crushing process. And that crushing process will be adjusted for the product that we're trying to make. And if that product is sand, goes through crushers and screens and then it gets tested at the end that the gradation we're looking for so all the small sizes of sand it'll actually have you know it'll go through a series of what we call sieves that are little screens and we will test and make sure that that material meets our design requirements and even after that when we take it out and we're building the dam and we compact that sand we know that as you put a heavy load on it, it's gonna to wanna to break down a little bit. We will make sure that it didn't break down too much so that we still end up with the quality of material we're looking for. Wow. You know, we often hear it said that um, repairing a dam can be more difficult than building a brand new one. Why is that? If you look at Isabella, Isabella protects immediately downstream the town of Lake Isabella. So we have several thousand residents there. And then about 40 miles downstream, we have the town of, you know, the city of Bakersfield and 300,000 plus residents there. So they've been reliant on the flood control, you know, flood damage reduction benefits, we call them, that Congress authorized when the project was originally built nearly 70 years ago. So as we're constructing this project, as we're designing the project, we need to keep this in mind. We need to continue to provide those flood damage reduction benefits. 
So obviously, as the project works and a flood could come along during our three to four year construction period, any one of those winters, we need to be prepared. So our design had to do things like, okay, well, we can't we can't just take down the embankment and expose all of the people that would then be at risk that have been reliant on on the project to provide flood protection for 70 plus years. How do we do it in a way that we minimize exposure, we keep the project as safe as we possibly can during construction, because during construction, you are going to do things like you're going to excavate your foundation, you're going to degrade part of the dam. So some of our considerations are, hey, we'll only do that outside of our flood control season. And California and the West Coast has a fairly distinct flood control season from essentially November through March. So a lot of those things we're going to do in spring and summer and early fall when we know those large events aren't going to come, when we know the likelihood of an extreme loading um, from, from a flood routing is really, really unlikely. And then we're going to button it back up for winter and we're going to get through that next flood season and then we'll continue the next year. So some of those things, of course, add to your construction time because safety, again, is the very first thing we're thinking about. And that's the first thing that we're making sure we accommodate. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, you know, it also seems like everyone has an answer for how a dam or, or a levee or whatever is to be built or be, to be fixed. Everyone's got input, right? So what do you think is the biggest like myth or misconception that, that people have, the general public has about how uh, the Corps of Engineers determines the right solution for any project? Well, you know, I, I think part of it is something we discussed a little bit ago, and that's every project's unique. Every project is its own size. Every project has its own watershed. Every project has its own probable maximum flood. Every project has a unique foundation. So it isn't and it can't be a one size fits all thing. You're going to have to go dam by dam. You're going to have to evaluate the hydrology, the seismic capability, uh, what was originally constructed. And you're going to have to make that all fit into whatever solution you come up with. You've got to come up with a solution that is, again, safe during construction, that the project at the end of construction can safely perform in a way that Congress said, this is what we want this project to do. And you're just going to have to evaluate, you know, you might have a, like Isabella has a, a gross pool of almost 580,000 acre feet. So an acre foot is essentially a football field without the end zones and one foot deep, one foot of water on it. So that's that's one acre foot. So imagine 585,000 of those at what would be our gross pool, which is the crest of the OG weir at the service spillway. So that's where we would normally allow the pool to go to in the in the spring summer operating months when we start to store water for irrigation use, municipal use, recreational uses, etc. And another project, uh, Success Lake a little bit to the north, which is actually getting a spillway raise now, its original capacity is in the 80, 85,000 acre foot range. It's a smaller watershed. It's a smaller project. So, you know, you have to tailor 
um, to the needs of, of each and every project that you're addressing. What inspired you to become an engineer, Mike? You know, interestingly enough, my father's a civil engineer and I was exposed to it from a very early age. He's always been in construction and I really liked construction. Um, my very first job was as a 16 year old. I was a laborer on a construction project and I just I just loved I, I just really loved seeing things get built and knowing that they were planned and thought out and, and built with a purpose. So um, I just really liked the idea of engineering. And I honestly thought, oh, I'm going to end up in construction. When I started with the core, I, I had the opportunity to, to join a design section. And then it turned out I really, really liked design. So I've 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 spent my career on the design side of the house um, alongside, you know, engineering support during construction. But uh, yeah, for me, I kind of fell into it following my dad's footsteps. And I've been doing it for 35 plus years. And wow. I'm just as excited about it today as I was then. You know, it's, it has never grown old for me at all. So when you're uh, when you're driving down the street uh, and and see some other construction project going on that you're not involved in, do you, do you get excited? Do you stop? Do you do you look at all the the action that's going on there? And yeah, I, I, I can see you know me because uh, that's exactly <laughs> what I do. Um, I I admire a lot of engineering projects and and not just the types of projects I work on. Um, I've I've done some bridge seismic retrofit during my career, so. You know, in California, the Caltrans bridge projects, and uh, I've never really been involved with vertical construction and design, but buildings, they fascinate me too. So yeah, I, I just about, I can't flip that switch off. <laughs> uh, can you offer any career advice for anyone thinking about getting an engineer maybe? So, you know, one of the things about working for the Corps of Engineers is there are so many opportunities, not only which discipline you get into, but what type of work you do. I'm on the civil work side of the house and I really enjoy working on dams, but maybe you like military construction and vertical design. Um, maybe your desire and your interests are in environmental engineering. Maybe your interests are in planning. There's just an awful lot of opportunity within the core. And if you really want to focus on one thing for your career, you can, like I've focused on civil works, but there's also the opportunity to, hey, maybe you want to be in design. Maybe you want to go to construction for a while. I, I just think that the core, there's just such a wide array of things and opportunities to go do and, and no reason at all to ever get bored. You can go from coast to coast. We have support in Europe and overseas and other places. So, I mean, it's, it's even a worldwide opportunity, if you will. So I, I really, I really like what the core has to offer. I'm a huge believer in, you know, the civil works mission and everything. So supporting that, you know, each and every day for me is, is very, very easy to do. How about reading you big reader? Do you have a, a favorite book or a favorite author that you'd share with folks? You know, I'm definitely the, uh, we, we joke, the engineer, you know, <laughs> um, I read a lot of science articles and, and maybe it's about what NASA is doing on a mission to Mars or something like that. But all of that just really, really interests me. And here's just an example of what I kind of like. Um, it's called The Nothing That Is, A Natural History of Zero. It was written by a guy named Robert Kaplan. And it's this historic 
going back to like the Romans and the Greeks and uh, mathematicians in India, like there, there wasn't zero didn't always exist. There's no Roman Roman numeral for zero. So he looks at just, just how, you know, how do you multiply Roman numerals? You don't have a zero, you don't have a placeholder. You don't, <laughs> you know, just conceptually, how does that all work out? And I found it to be this really, really interesting book because it wasn't pure math, but it was also kind of about human nature and history and things like that. And and uh, I'd actually like to go back and, and read it again. But that's one I thought about. And and one I read as a teenager, which I see is coming out as in the movies now, is I liked a lot of science fiction, um, Dune. So I, I may oh, have to yeah. go back and reread Dune before I go see the movie because I'm probably going to go see that. Yeah, that one looks pretty exciting. Well, hey, listen, I want to uh, respect your time here. We're running short on it. So I want to switch gears real quick here and I want to get in to uh, the Proust questionnaire. Are you familiar with the Proust questionnaire? No. Okay, well, Marcel Proust was a French writer back in the early 1900s who believed that in answering some of these questions that he came up with, that an individual reveals his or her true nature. You game? You want to play? Sure. All right, so here we go. First question is, what is your idea of perfect happiness? Oh my gosh, that's a really hard one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think, I think um, for me, uh, starts with family. It's, uh, you know, happy family, happy life. I like it. That needs to go on a bumper sticker or something. Uh, what is your greatest extravagance? You know, it, it may just be my, it may be my coffee habit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I probably would, uh, would be a uh, shudder to think of how much I spend on actually mostly just no, not even fancy coffee drinks, but just coffee. There we go. I like it. All right. What is the quality that you like most in a person? I, I think hands down, it's probably integrity. I, I really believe that, you know, if, if a person has a high degree of integrity, which is very much an army value, mm -hmm. I, I think from, from there, you know, things are, are going to be pretty doggone good. Yeah, I would agree. Which talent would you most like to have? One that's just completely superficial. Um, maybe, maybe some sort of musical talent because I like music and I and, and things like that. But I have absolutely no talent for it at all. So that's that's a that's a void for me. So I, I guess I'd like to, uh, if I could, I'd, I'd fill that void somewhat. Yeah, I get that one a lot. So, like, would you like to learn how to play an instrument or sing? You know, if, you know, in a kind of a perfect world, because you know. Uh, uh, Classic rock and roll has always been, you know, what I listen to most. So to to play the guitar and sing would be, yeah, that would probably be my my choice. And finally, last question, perhaps the most important. So make sure you're giving this one some thought. Tells us a lot about you. Who is your favorite superhero? Hmm. You know, I don't know that today I have a favorite superhero, but as a kid... I'm, I'm old enough that comic books were super popular when I was a kid. And my favorite comic book series was Fantastic Four. So I'll leave it at that. 
Many thanks once again to Mike Rutherford for helping us wrap up Season 1 of Digging Deep. We sincerely hope you now have just a little better understanding of what the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers Sacramento District does and the thought processes that go behind some of the decisions that we make. As always, be sure to check out the written podcast description for more information on some of those resources shared during the show. And of course, we'd absolutely appreciate it if you'd leave us some feedback and tell us what you think about the show. That helps us determine how we'll move forward with the podcast and what we might discuss impossible future episodes. See you next time. Thank you.